And let's turn to 1 Chronicles 11. 1 Chronicles 11. I want to talk this morning about a strange battle that exists in our mind. And it really is between two ideas that are diametrically opposed to each other. You'll understand that better when I tell you in just a second. On one hand, I think there's a constant prevailing question in our mind, am I doing enough? Now, that question applies just about to every area of our lives, to our physical health, am I getting strong enough, am I watching my way, and am I eating right? Um, it, it applies, you students, to studying for school and kind of doing the work we need to do for that. It, it applies to how we raise our kids. Am I doing the right things? Am I giving them too much video time? Am I teaching them enough about the Word? It applies to how we work. Am I being a diligent worker at my job and, and really doing what I need to do? It applies to whether we have enough income. None of us does, right? Not enough in savings, but, but am I doing enough? Am I doing enough to prepare for my future? And this question of am I doing enough really becomes an issue if we compare ourselves to other people. Like when Julie showed me a picture of some of our friends the other day on a trip to New Zealand. There was no envy there, right? As I looked at them on this beautiful lake with snow-capped mountains, and we're in New Zealand, and I'm like, well, I'm not jealous of that one bit. That's, that's fine. No, good for them. This, this comparison kind of um, becomes an issue. I mean, remember we used to joke when we, were, when we were young, if you're over 45 or 50, that you'd go to somebody's house and you'd have to watch their vacation slides, right? Like that was, that was the death. Like, oh, here's, here we are in Peru. Oh, oh that's great. Yeah, where's, where's dessert? I need some extra coffee. Like this is the 97th slide of Peru. Now we not only uh, look at those, but we choose to look at those. So there's, there's this, this feeling that, that comes about, this, this, this culture of jealousy and coveting and constantly saying, am I doing enough? Why don't I have the life that that person has? And this becomes even more of an issue when we talk about it spiritually because we have to constantly be asking, am I steadily maturing in the Lord? Am I, am I doing what God's calling me to do? Am I studying to show myself approved unto God, a workman that's not ashamed? Am I standing for him as strongly as I'm called to do? Even Paul struggled with that. If you read the middle of Romans, he says, the good that I should do, I don't do, and the things that I know I shouldn't do, those I do. Wretched man that I am. So even the apostle said, I'm not doing enough. Now, we're not talking about a works theology. We're talking about just the sense of, of am I fulfilling the calling that God's given me to fulfill? So that's the first question. Am I doing enough? At the same time, we're asking another question that really nags at us, even though we probably don't want to say it out loud. And the second question is, why don't I get more credit? Now, we're not going to say that out loud. Some people might, but, but most of us just kind of internalize that. Maybe we feel like our spouse doesn't appreciate us, or our boss doesn't give us enough credit, or that we're somehow undervalued in what we're doing, that people aren't paying enough attention. I know that's a, a proud thought, but it is a thought because we struggle with pride. So, so we're kind of wondering, even in serving the Lord, am I, am I getting enough credit? And that's made worse when we see other people getting praise that we don't think deserve praise. You don't struggle with that, right? I know I never do. 
And we wonder, why doesn't the praise, why doesn't the credit come our way? And we don't want to think that way, but, but we do. And it's kind of this odd mix of, of insecurity and frustration. And if it goes too far, it becomes resentment. Kind of feeling this irritation that we want to have a sense of self-worth and value, but sometimes that validation just doesn't come our way. Now, of course, the, the enemy loves to exploit this. He loves it when we're full of self-doubt. And, and when it's mixed with a, with a measure of pride, he sees that as a great opportunity to weaken our resolve to live for the Lord. And in doing that, he perpetuates the constant lie that God really doesn't love us, that God really doesn't care about us. And then to, to kind of exacerbate it, he throws in this weird mix of inadequacy and guilt and weakness and weariness just to make sure we're really worn down. So we, we constantly, I think, maybe it's not true of you, but we constantly kind of walk around in this, in this daze. Now, what makes this particularly dangerous is that this is usually played out on the field of everyday life. This is usually how we feel every day. The attack I have found over 44 years of being a believer is not as prevalent when we're crying out to the Lord in deep dependence and, and falling on our face, and Lord, we need your help. And, and that, When the devil looks at that, he knows we're serious. He knows we're really focused on our faith, and it grates in him. It grates in him how gracious the Lord is. It grates in him how God loves to work in magnificent ways to meet our need. So in those times, the enemy has very little power to dissuade us. But here's where the opposition really is effective. He hits us in the basis of walking by faith every day. That day-by-day -day dependence, that discipline, that consistency of study and prayer and living faithfully and being zealous for the Lord and, and standing for him in everyday situations and circumstances and relationships. When it just doesn't feel that important. When, when we're just kind of in the average course of life. When, when what we say and do just doesn't seem to have that huge an impact on eternity. That is where the majority of the battle is going to be fought. That's why I love this passage of Scripture. This, this may be, of all passages of Scripture, this may be in my top five. First Chronicles chapter 11. Here we see someone faithfully standing for the Lord against a strong enemy. And I want you to notice the setting because it's the key to the whole study. This is a very average setting. Eleazar doesn't defend a barley field because it has great value or because it's a strategically vital piece of land that they just cannot afford to, to have captured. He stands and fights because it's the Lord's land and it's the Lord's enemies and it's the Lord's cause. So while the victory the Lord provides is spectacular, and we'll see that in a minute, what I pray we'll see this morning is that what Eleazar defends, listen now, seems to have very little value. 
Now, how do we stand, you and I, how do we stand in those times when we're in the middle of a barley field? How closely do we walk with the Lord? How unwavering is our faith and our faithfulness and our consistency and our commitment to Christ when we're in the average, when the calling is small, when it seems unimportant, when there's just a need to be uh, kind of uh, steady and unnoticed and consistent, as opposed to when the calling is significant. Does it look the same? Am, am I the same believer? Am I walking by faith? And am I steady for the Lord in the average every day as in the huge? Because Jesus told us, he who is faithful in a little will be given much. So are we content with being faithful in the little? Now, that's the focus of the study this morning, and we're just going to read three verses, verses 12 to 14, 1 Chronicles 11. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, who was one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pastamon when the Philistines were gathered together there to battle, and there was a plot of ground full of barley, and the people fled before the Philistines. They took their stand, speaking of Eleazar and David, they took their stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. Now, it's only three verses, but in those three verses, as the Holy Spirit always does, he gives us a plethora of details. The person, the place, the opponent, the setting, the first result, the reaction to the first result, the second result, and the ultimate victory. But, but there's one detail that we need to focus on, I believe, this morning that seems like a harmless little adjective, but how many know there's no accidental information in the Bible? Every word is key. The Holy Spirit doesn't, doesn't waste any word. So when he says they were in the middle of a barley field, there was a plot of ground full of barley, that detail is important. It's not a plot of cotton. It's not a plot of wheat. It's a plot of barley. Now, why, why, ask that question of the text all the time. Why is this here? Well, I believe that one main reason is that he wants us to see the value of the barley field in our lives. See the value of the barley field in our lives. Barley was a lesser crop. It was kind of a, a throwaway grain, not, not, not like wheat. Wheat was important. Barley, barley was just kind of an extra. It was used by people who couldn't afford wheat. It was given to animals for food. It wasn't, wasn't highly valued. It wasn't seen as important. It's not particularly tasty. It, it was just kind of what you had when you didn't have anything else. And barley is unique because it can be planted without plowing. So you can take little tight areas, you can take little plots of land, and you can plant barley. You don't need a big, uh, big agricultural machine to get in there. You don't need mules to plow up the ground. You just basically toss the barley, and it grows. So for someone who had little money or someone who didn't have a lot of land, they could use barley to grow for food. Now, barley was, and I don't want to bore you with the details, but it was particularly abundant about around Bethlehem, which is where Jesus was born. 
It's mentioned all throughout the book of Ruth. You find the most references to barley in the book of Ruth because Boaz farmed barley and Ruth gleaned it. She, she took it in and dried it out and, and laid it out for use. So both Boaz and Ruth in the book of Ruth are praised just for honoring the Lord in their daily work, just gathering the barley. Jesus also was around barley. We're going to see in a couple weeks in a study that he used five loaves and two fish. Remember that passage? And the Bible says that they were five, what kind of loaves? Tell me, barley loaves. Just peasant food, just everyday kind of stuff. Not the, not the 389 oat nut bread that you get that I love so much that's so good and just has all. No, just, just an average piece of bread. The, the little boy had the five barley loaves, and we'll study that. So Jesus was around it. Jesus also said the fields are white. And he was speaking of barley fields because barley fields in certain sunlight look white. And he said the fields are white and the laborers are few. Speaking about the need to evangelize and the need to reach people with the gospel. So he used barley to say here's an example of people that have not trusted in the Lord that, that need to be harvested. So barley's not only prominent. But it serves as a spiritual metaphor for what's kind of average. We would call it maybe a little derisively the, the mundane, what's unexciting, what doesn't seem very important in the long run. Now, look back at the text because in verse 13 it says, Eleazar finds himself standing in the middle of this barley field. Everybody else has taken off. The Philistines are all around him. And he'd probably be a lot more jazzed, wouldn't he, if he was defending the temple. Or he was fighting for the, for the uh, core of some city that was strategically placed in Israel. And, and the enemies came, the Philistines came down, and they had to defend that city. He would, he would be excited by that, right? We love, we love the good battles. We love the battles that have, that have a real intent and a real purpose behind them. But this is not the situation for Eleazar. He's standing in the middle of a barley field by himself. And I've always wondered when I've studied this text, does he look around and ask myself, ask himself, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Why am I in the middle of this lousy, worthless field trying to defend it against the Philistines? You know, sometimes you and I are going to feel alone. And we're going to be in the middle of a situation that doesn't seem worth defending. And it is in those times of, of simple, common, ordinary, everyday, seemingly unimportant battles when we have to persevere and we have to expect God to meet us. I was convicted this week how many times I dismissed something as insignificant. That conversation we have with a coworker or a neighbor or that act of showing love to somebody that's just not really very lovable or, or something as simple as just reading a bedtime story to a child or, or spending time to, to study the word and, and prepare ourselves to give an answer for the hope that's in us. Or defending our faith when we have a tense conversation with a friend who wants to argue and tell us that the Bible's not true and God uh, doesn't matter and, and, and whatever, whatever. And, and, and we, don't, we don't fight, but we stand for our faith. And, and we get criticized for it, but we persevere. How many times 
we serve behind the scenes and think, well, this is just a barley field. This is, this is not important to vacuum this room or change this diaper or set out the communion or, or whatever. Or just the simple act of depending on the Lord. Praying, persevering in prayer when it doesn't seem like the answer is coming readily, but we're not going to give up. Not getting weary and well-doing. Not, not saying, I can't do anymore. Like Timothy, I'm done. I, I quit. I, I'm, I'm through with it all. But seeing it all as unto the Lord. Those are all barley fields. And I want to tell you, none of them are insignificant. They're just one piece of ground after another that's being attacked by the enemy and we have to stand firm please hear this we have to stand firm in the middle of the field because if we give up in what is ordinary it's going to single a uh, signal uh, a spiritual resignation that the devil's ready to exploit and how would we think that we can be strong and courageous in the big stuff? Well, Lord, I want some big challenges. I want to do some big work for you. And, and I'm going to be strong and courageous. And the Lord says, how do I trust that? Because you're not strong and courageous in the little things. You're not, you're not standing faithful in me in, in what is normal and what's easy. So you're asking for a big challenge now? Where's the faithfulness in the little stuff? See, what I've found is that the Lord rarely calls us into extraordinary, life-changing conflicts. But when he does, he wants to know, he wants to be sure that we have been faithful in serving in the ordinary because that's what he delights in. He delights in the everyday. He wants you and me to be faithful today. He wants you and me to be faithful tomorrow in our parenting, in our work, in our serving, in our walk. That's why he's giving you and me fresh mercies tomorrow because he knows that the everyday matters. Now you may say, well, that's kind of boring and I crave more and I want more and I want to do big things and stand out for the Lord, make a difference and, and an impact on the world. And that's awesome. And when God puts us in the position, I pray that we will. But in the meantime, we have to be faithful in the everyday. And that leads us to a second spiritual principle that he really impressed upon my heart as I was driving the other night. Here it is. We spend more time in the barley field than we do on top of Mount Sinai. Oh, man, the Holy Spirit just put that thought in my head, and I couldn't grab my phone to write it down. I texted. I didn't text by my hand. I used talk text. Okay? I was being safe while I drove. But, but I couldn't. I had to get that thought out. The Holy Spirit put that thought on my heart so strongly that, that there are times, there are times for miracles. There are times for awesome works of God where our faith is so stretched to the limit and where God works in such magnificent ways that, that we're rendered speechless, that we're just like, Lord, you did that. Oh, you answered that prayer and you worked and you healed and you ministered and you saved. Oh, Lord, I can't believe you did that. Those are tremendous, life-changing moments. But I want to tell you, they're not typical every day. They're not. Tomorrow, the chances you will not experience a life-changing moment. But you will have to get through the day. And here's what the Lord wants us to know, I believe. When we stand for him in the barley field, he will stand for us when it's time for a miracle. 
He will be there. If he sees us being faithful every day, walking with him, just, just fighting, just persevering, just defending him, Oh, when it comes time for him to work and we say, Lord, will you move? Lord, will you help us? He'll say, oh, I bless you because you've been faithful in a little. Now I'm going to give you much. That means that defending the barley field is just as important as anything else. Listen, you can go to Hebrews 11. You're not going to find the Eleazar's name in the great men and women of faith. Abraham and Moses and David and a lot. You're not going to find Eliezer's name. There are like maybe 10 verses about him in all of Scripture. But I want to tell you, look back. We get these three verses and they tell us all we need to know. He's one of David's mighty men. David had 30 mighty men, men who were distinguished, who were, who were warriors, who were faithful, who would give their lives for David. And there were 30 of them, but there were three that stood out. There were three that were kind of over the other 27. You see them in this passage in verse 11, Yashobim. You see it in verse 12, Eleazar. And in verse, uh, I forget the other one. I don't know. Oh, uh, Abishai, verse 20. So, so Eleazar is one of these three that's kind of prominent. But that's not why the Lord talks about him. The Lord talks about him because in verses 13 and 14, he defeats the Philistines by defending almost a, a worthless plot of land in Pastamon. Now, when Eleazar woke up that morning, when, when he got out of bed, I can't imagine that he thought, that by the end of the day, he would be abandoned by everybody, standing in the middle of the field, having to fight hundreds of Philistines by himself. And the Philistines start attacking, and it's the time of harvest, and their goal is to destroy the crops, not only because they want to defeat the enemy, but, but they want to weaken their resolve. They want, to, they want to chop down their will and their ability to fight, so they destroyed the food supply. And the barley seems almost incidental in the grand scheme of things, but Eleazar says to himself, this is the land that the Lord has given to us. He promised it to Abraham. You're going to have this land. Here are the boundaries. He promised it to Moses as the people walked to the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, and they came in, and they took, they took Jericho and Ai, and they spread out through the land. This was God's land. So, so he looks at that, and he says, I don't care that it is a barley field. This is something that the Lord has given to us. Now the Philistines aren't backing down. They fight hard to take this piece of ground because that's what the devil does. Anywhere he can get room, anywhere he can get a foothold, anywhere he can get a little piece of ground in your life, that's a victory for him. And this reminds us that if our heart and our life and our situations weren't valuable to the Lord, who, by the way, came to live among us and save us and redeem us personally. That if our heart and our lives and our situations weren't important to the Lord, there would be no spiritual battle around us. The enemy will only fight what he sees as spiritually valuable to us. So the Bible says, guard your heart. Why? Why? Because the heart is the center of life. If we don't guard our heart and it's exposed, we're going to fall into sin. It's 
why he says pray without ceasing. It's why he says trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Because he knows that if we don't trust the Lord, we're vulnerable. It's why in every situation we have to look to the Lord for help because if we try to do it on our own, he's going to say, well, Rhodes, man, he's trying to control his own life. That is perfect. That, that's perfect because I know Paul's weaknesses and I know Paul's propensities. And, and if I can get him to not trust the Lord and not follow the Spirit's leading and not, and not look at the Word for guidance, if I can get him to freelance, oh, I'm going to win. You know, we can usually discern that something is important to the cause of Christ if the enemy fights his tooth and nail on it. We can usually understand that if he's trying to push us away from faith and obedience, that it's very important. And it may seem small now, but the Lord has plans for us above all that we can ask or think. So don't get fooled by the barley field. It's not the top of Sinai. It, it's not standing in the manifest presence of God and your face glowing and having your eyes covered because you can't see him and, and coming down with, with the commandments. And No, no. A lot of days, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, may not be the top of Sinai, but they will be the barley field. And sometimes that's a very lonely place. Just like Eleazar here, look at it. Everybody runs. If you look at the companion passage in 2 Samuel 23, it says all the people ran. They were all scared. You see it here in verse 13. The people fled before the Philistines. The enemy exposed their lack of faith and their lack of commitment. And as Eleazar watches them all go, what does he hear in his heart? He hears the temptation of compromise. He hears the persuasive words of the enemy. Why don't you run too? What you're doing is pointless. Just look at the numbers. You're toast. And who's going to remember you, Eleazar, when you die in the middle of this worthless field? You should have gotten some help. You are one of David's mighty men. Why aren't they listening to you? Why aren't you getting more credit? Why, why, why are you stuck here? Have you ever heard those temptations from the devil? When, when he just kind of laughs and he says, you're insignificant, you don't matter, what you're doing is unimportant. Even in the middle of a great victory, he can get us to buy into the claim that we just don't matter. How do I know that's true? Because when you look throughout Scripture, you see people falling into that lie again and again and again. Sarah in the tent. <laughs> I have a child. I'm old. Moses at the burning bush. I can't speak to people. You're going to put me in front of millions of people and try to get me to convince them to go, let alone going to Pharaoh. I can't do that. Elijah in the cave. I'm done. Just kill me now, Lord. Just bring me to heaven. I can't do anymore. Peter in the courtyard. I, 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 I don't know him. I, I don't know. I, not me. Not me. Stop yelling at me. I don't know. I've never seen that man before in my life. Timothy in Ephesus. 
I, I can't keep doing this. How many times do we fall into that temporary lie that we just don't matter? Not Eleazar, look at it. Listen to how verse chapter 23 of Second Samuel describes him. It says, he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Let me give you a third truth this morning. The third truth is when others leave, don't run with them. Just grip the sword tighter. When others leave and they're not committed, don't run away with them. Just grip the sword tighter. Now, how does that apply to you and me today? Well, if we take into account the, the amount of spiritual concession and spiritual compromise that's taken place, it's not hard to discern because so many Christians and so many churches, and God help us never to be uh, in, in that category, but so many churches and so many Christians have taken the posture of verse 13, running to, to, uh, from what is essential to find safety in what's questionable. And, and this is seen, this is viewed, this is, this is justified as strategic. We need to retreat from the barley field to, to regroup and figure out a better plan than actually standing for the Lord. And this has taken place in, in three distinct areas. Number one, theology. Our theology in Christianity in 2018 is far less biblical. That is not an understatement. It is far less biblical and more consumer-driven, more emotional, more subjective because the Bible has perfect standards and we've decided collectively as believers that we just can't live that way. So theology has gotten compromised. Conviction has gotten compromised. It's softer than it used to be to the point that our convictions and our words and our practice in many ways are indistinguishable from the world. We're called to be holy and set apart. We're told don't let anything evil even be named among you. Don't even joke about it. Now, we can, we can slough that off and say, well, come on, that's the first century. No, all word is given by inspiration of God's profitable proof, correction, training, and righteousness, correct? Do we affirm that? So if the Bible says, don't even joke about evil, don't even let it be named among you, let alone do it. Conviction's been softened. And then our integrity naturally takes a hit because we're willing to concede and compromise so God's grace starts to get abused without a real sense of guilt. And as is true, we see in the text with the Lord's people at the end of verse 13, all of this is usually driven by fear. Fear of not being accepted, fear of the restrictions to our freedom, fear of having to die to self and take up our cross daily, and there are many more. You know, one of the key indicators of concession and compromise versus being spirit-filled is that when somebody who is godly calls us on it, concession and compromise defends itself and denies responsibility, where being spirit-filled falls before the Lord and asks forgiveness and then stands firm. 
And Eleazar, look at it. We're going to try to conclude. Eleazar is very easy to define. He stands in the barley field, and he fights with all he has, and he's so passionate and so courageous that even as he gets tired, because you can't imagine wielding a sword, turning, fighting enemies, that as he does this, he grips the sword even tighter. So really, the Bible says, his hand sticks to the handle. There's like a spiritual super glue that even if he wanted to let go, he couldn't. He can't drop it. Oh, I don't know about you, but I need to ask the Lord for that type of willingness. I need to ask the Lord for that type of commitment in my spirit, not just to not be weary in well-doing, but to be unwavering, unwavering until the Lord gives the victory. And that leads to our last principle, and this one is so powerful. Look at verse 13. Eleazar was with David and passed Damon when the Philistines were gathered together there to battle, and there was a plot of ground full of barley, and the people fled before the Philistines. Eleazar and David took their stand in the middle of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. Here's the last principle. When we are faithful, the king fights for us. When we are faithful, the king fights for us. Now, as Eleazar watches all the people run away, that doesn't deter him. He sets his feet and he says, all right, it's just going to be me. This is going to be interesting. It, it looks like it's going to be a losing battle, but I'm here. I'm ready. And then all of a sudden, he's joined by David, the new king, the one who God had anointed. And I love that verse. It says they took their stand in the middle of the plot and they defended it. See, David came back and he fought with the only person who's willing to defend the Lord. And I've always pictured him and Eleazar back to back, swords drawn, ready to win. Now, why did David come back? Surely he knew that a barley field was not very worthwhile. So why is he here defending it? Well, look at the key word in verse 13, because the name of the place is Pastamon. Now, if you're a biblical scholar, and I'm not, so I had to look it up, there was another town called Ephesdamon. Ephesdamon is where David killed Goliath. And here's the thing. Those two are the same place. Pastamon, Ephesdamon. It's the same place called by a different name. So as David comes back to defend it, Eleazar, think about the deep feelings. Think about the personal investment that he had there. Remembering, we saw it on a slide a couple weeks ago, remembering when he ran down to take on Goliath with the Philistines on one hill and the Israelites on the other hill. And the stakes couldn't have been higher because whoever wins the one-on-one -on -one battle, the other nation has to serve. And remember David, we studied it a couple weeks ago, running toward Goliath. That victory began 
not when David started running. That victory began when David stood in the metaphorical barley field and he said to Saul, who was a coward, and he said to the others, why are we letting that giant mock the name of our Lord? What? Wait, what? Why isn't anybody dealing with this? I just came to bring some food to my brothers, and I see all you guys cowering, and Saul, what are you doing? You're just sitting back all, all fearful. What are we going to do? And it's been days and days and days. It wasn't just one or two days. It was weeks of Goliath coming out every morning and mocking the Lord and cursing God and cursing the people. And David finally shows up, and he goes, what's going on here? Why are you doing that? That was David's barley field. And we talk about the miracle of the stone finding its mark in Goliath's forehead. But that stone never would have been thrown if David hadn't been faithful in something very basic. So I believe this with all the conviction I have. I believe that when he and Eleazar are standing there ready to fight, David says, listen, I know this place. I've been here. I had an experience here. It wasn't long ago. And let me tell you, God worked and gave victory. I experienced the hand of the Lord right here. Eleazar, listen, this is not a coincidence. We're at past Damon, and this is where Goliath fell. And now we're facing the Philistines again. And let me tell you, if we stand for the Lord today, if, if we live for him, God will give us victory. He's already done it once, and he's going to do it again. So gird up your sword, Eleazar. We're about to see the hand of the Lord. What a powerful picture of how our king works in our lives. Jesus said, if you defend me before men, I will defend you before my Father who is in heaven. And he promised us, I will give you all the power, all the supply you need through my indwelling Holy Spirit. So listen, believer, every spiritual battle that we face is made so much easier by the king's presence with us. When you are in daily conflicts this week, when you're having to defend him, when you're having to persevere in your faith and stand for your convictions, realize that like David fighting with Eleazar here, that our king and our Lord is standing with us. And he's equipping us, and he's encouraging us, and he's fighting with us. And when the battle becomes too much, he fights for us because it's his battle. And sometimes the worst battles are the barley-filled ones, the, the everyday ones, the ordinary ones. But listen, there's never a great victory without a battle. And when God brings the victory, all praise and all glory goes to him. All praise and all glory goes to him. If God answers a prayer this week, you give him praise and glory. Don't just move on to the next request. Well, I got my list. You did one, two, and three. Thanks, Lord. Now I got four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. No, praise him for one. Praise him for one. Praise him for one. And then when you're tired of praising him for one, praise him for two. And you'll find that four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Ah, oh, Lord, you got that. You got that. This is past stamina. 
See that right there, Eleazar? See that spot right there? That's where Goliath went down. I ran right over here. Oh, man. God's worked in this place. And we're back. And all these Philistines are around. This isn't a problem. This is a barley field, and we're going to defend it. Listen, like Eleazar, we may never know the lasting impact of just humbly and faithfully doing the work of the Lord. I read this week, I don't know who said it, faith is the breeding ground for miracles. Now listen, as we're done, instead of just waiting for the miracles and being disappointed that right now we're in a barley field, we should walk by faith every day, grateful that we're his, ready to be used either in small unspectacular ways or to experience his greatest miracles. And I pray that whatever it is, whether it's a barley field or the top of Sinai, I pray we'll be content in whatever that calling is. And I pray that we will give him praise for all that he does. Praise his holy name.